Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Bibles with you this morning. I want to encourage you to turn to the 10th chapter of Romans. We're going to continue our study of the 10th chapter. And as we begin, let me just give a comment or two about where we were at two weeks ago, the last time that we were in Romans chapter 10. What Paul is doing in the 10th chapter of Romans is that he is dealing with a problem. Actually, he does this in, 10, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Primarily, what he is talking about is God's salvation plan for human history, His redemptive plan of grace, salvation over the human race. And so, what he's doing here in chapter 10, Paul is addressing the problem of the Jew, this chosen people of God. This people that God had made so many promises to, and yet what Paul says in the beginning of chapter 9, in the beginning of chapter 10, in the beginning of chapter 11, all three chapters, he makes the point that there's a problem, and that is that the Jews, in wholesale fashion, large majority of them are lost. They're cut off from the blessing of Christ. They're outside of the saving plan of God. And so the question is, how can that be? How can that be? He's addressing that problem. And what he does, what we looked at two weeks ago, what he does in the 10th chapter in the first four verses is he he explains why it is that the Jews in the present day are the vast majority of them cut off from the saving plan of God. And the reason is, is that they have tried to produce their own righteousness. They've tried to make themselves right before God. And the way they did that that was through a zealous obedience to God's law. That doesn't sound like a bad thing. But what Paul says is their attempt to make themselves right before God is actually an abuse of the righteousness of God. It's actually a rejection of the only way that they can be righteous, and that way is through Christ. And he makes this summary statement in verse 4 that not only summarizes the first four verses, but sets up the next nine. So let me read for you again from two weeks ago, Romans chapter 10, verse 4, where Paul summarizes the problem, and he says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This truth here in this verse is so important, it's so monumental that Paul is going to spend the next nine verses unpacking the truth contained in verse number four. So we're going to look at those nine verses today and see how Paul explains the depth of truth that's in the phrase, Christ is the end of the law for for righteousness to everyone who believes. He begins in verse 5 by talking about this righteousness that the Jews were trying to accomplish by their own merit, 
by obedience to the law. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. What Paul does here is he reaches back again as he does so often into Israel's history. He goes to the central figure of Israel's history in the Old Testament, Moses. Moses being the lawgiver. And what he says is that Moses told us how the law works towards salvation. And here's how the law works. I'm going to summarize it in a few words. Do and live. That's the message of the law. Do and live. If you want to be saved through the law, you have to do it and then you will live. And what we understand from other scriptures that Moses said, like Leviticus 18.5, And I'll give you one also from the New Testament from James, the brother of the Lord, James chapter 2, verse 10. Listen, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Here's the point. Here's what the law says. The law says perfect obedience brings life. Do, meaning perfectly obey Every moment of every day throughout your entire life, perfect obedience brings life. Disobedience, even at one point, even one failure, even one improper desire, even one selfish motive, even one negation of what you're supposed to do, and you've broken the entire law, you're guilty of it all, and you're lost. So the point that Paul is trying to teach is Christ being the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, and so he makes it really clear that what the law says is that you mess up at any point and you come under the condemnation of the law, under the just judgment of God, under His wrath, so that He can help reinforce the importance for you and me that we find a way to come to the end of the law. How important is it for us to find a way to come to the end of the law so that meaning that it will not condemn us anymore because it can never be by our actions because how many of us have perfectly always fulfilled the truth, the law of God? None. None. So that, that's the setup to now teach how Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes? How is Christ the end? Or said this way, how does Christ bring an end to the just condemnation of the law for you and me? How does he do that? So what Paul is going to do here is he's going to explain that. And what you're going to, what you're going to hear this morning really is this hopefully, this really clear presentation of the gospel. Answer to this question, what must I do to be saved? Or 
How is it that I, a sinner, can be saved? And what must I do? Paul's going to answer that very precisely and very clearly in the verses that we're going to look at. The next three verses, though are a little complicated, need some explanation. Let me read Romans 10, 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, so he's making a contrast here. You understand that the righteousness based upon the law, do and live, is impossible, hopeless, but there's another righteousness. And it's a righteousness based upon faith. And then Paul says this about that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Parentheses. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? Parentheses. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, what Paul is doing here, I know that sounds pretty complicated. What in the world does that mean? I'm trusting that the Spirit of God will help me explain it to you clearly and concisely. What Paul does here is that he reaches back into history again, takes a quote from Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he uses that quote to explain the gospel, to explain the righteousness that comes by faith. But here's what he does. He takes a part of Moses's quote And then he inserts in parentheses some interpretation of his own related to the gospel. So what I need to first of all do is I need to read for you the quote that he took from Moses out of Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 through 14. Here's what Moses wrote. And Moses is writing about the law. He's writing about this law of God that God had given him for the people. And he writes in Deuteronomy 11, 14, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Then listen, it is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? But the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So here's what Moses is saying. Talking about the law of God. And Moses says, The law of God is not inaccessible to you. He's talking to the people of Israel. He's saying, the law of God is not inaccessible to you. It's near you. For example, you don't have to ascend into heaven to find out what the law of God is or to send somebody there to get it and bring it down to you so that you can hear it and understand it and do it. You don't have to do that. Secondly, you don't need to make a trip beyond the far side of the sea so that you can get the law of God and bring it back so that you can hear it and understand it and do it. You don't have to do that. And then he concludes in verse 14. Here's why. Because the law of God is right here. 
He was the lawgiver. He had given them the law. I could just see him holding the scrolls and saying, you don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to go to the far side of the sea. The law of God is right here. It's as close as your very heart and your very mouth. Did you hear him say that? It is near you. It's in your heart and in your mouth so that you can do it. So the point he's making in these two phrases, this you don't need to ascend into heaven. You don't need to go beyond the sea. Those were two phrases that were used to paint the picture of something impossible. Right? Those are impossible things. And so he's saying, you don't need to do the impossible to get the Word of God to you so that you can hear it and understand it and do it. You don't have to do that. It's already here. And the second point is, it's so accessible. It is right here, right now, as close as your very heart and your very mouth. So here's the interesting thing. The great Apostle Paul, longing to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, reaches back into history. He grabs this phrase from Moses and he brings it forward and he takes it and he states it and then adds some of his own interpretive truth to explain the gospel into this phrase of Moses. So listen to it again. Paul writes in verses 6 through 8, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And then here is his parenthetical insertion. That is to bring Christ down. Or in other words, that means to bring Christ down. Or, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss? That is, or that means, to bring Christ up from the dead. So let me explain the connection here. First of all, I want you to notice the substitution that Paul makes. Moses is talking about the law to the people of his day. But Paul takes the same statements of Moses... You don't need to go into heaven to get the Word. You don't need to go down into the deep or across the sea to get the Word. And Paul says, you don't need to go into heaven. And here is what he changes the law with, the Word with. That is, to bring Christ down. And you don't need to go into the abyss. And then he changes the law again for Christ, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. So what Paul does here is he substitutes Christ for the law. He substitutes Christ for the law. And so here is the message of the gospel. Here is, quote, the word of faith that he is proclaiming. And it's this. We do not need to ascend into heaven to get a Savior and bring Him down to us. We don't need to do that. Nor do we need to descend into the abyss to 
bring the Savior back from the dead. We don't need to do that. Praise God that we don't need to do that. Because guess what? It's just as impossible as the task that Moses said was impossible for the people to go into heaven and get the law or to go to the far side of the sea to get the law. Impossible things to do. And Paul uses that to say, here's what you don't have to do to be saved. You don't have to go get a Savior and bring Him to you. You don't have to bring that Savior back from the death, help Him accomplish that salvation. You don't have to do that. And why don't you have to do it? He's already done it. He's already done it. Can I get a witness? He's already done it. The Savior has descended and the Savior has ascended. It's not something that you and I have to work at to help accomplish. We don't have to make the impossible journey to heaven. We don't have to go to the depths of the abyss. We don't have to actually get our own Savior. We don't have to raise our own Savior from the dead. Why? Paul says, here's why. You don't have to go into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down because Christ has come down. Christ has already descended. Would you just run with that thought with me for a moment? Jesus Christ has already descended. He has come down. Jesus Christ descended in His conception. Jesus came down in His conception. This is... The angel saying to Joseph, Joseph, Mary is going to give birth to a son and that child that is in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He descended. He descended from heaven into the womb of Mary and he descended in his birth. Think about his descent in his birth. His crib was an animal feeding trough. And those that welcomed the creator of the universe were the livestock and the cattle in the barn. He descended in his birth. And then he descended in his upbringing. Think about how Jesus descended in his upbringing. Here's the king of glory. Here's he who possesses all the treasures of the universe and he's born into a humble, poor Jewish home. Raised in that poor environment, he descended right into a carpenter's shop. Fourth, he descended in his weakness. Think about Jesus descending in His weakness. This is the God of omnipotence, all power. And yet, Scripture says, He wept. Scripture says, He became weary. He was weary and stopped by the well and was thirsty. This is the God of all glory descending into the limitations of humanity. And then He descended even lower still. Think about this. He descended to being despised and rejected. He descended. 
those that He had given life and given breath to and given a voice to, used that voice to reject and despise Him. Oh, Jesus Christ indeed descended, but He went lower still. He descended into Gethsemane. Think about that. Think about His descent into Gethsemane. This is the Lord of eternal glory descending into the garden of anguish. He descended. And then He descended to the whipping post. There in Pilate's courtyard, the King of kings and Lord of lords descended to the whipping post where He was tied and the flesh was torn from His back. And then He descended to the cross. He got up from heaven's throne and laid down on Golgotha's cross. Jesus descended. But He's not done yet. Then He descended into the grave. Into the grave. The Lord of life wrapped the cloths of death around Him. His robes of splendor traded for grave clothes. He descended. And then He descended even further still. He descended into the depths below the earth. We don't understand this, but Scripture says that while He was dead, His Spirit descended into the lower regions. Jesus Christ has already descended. You do not need to go to heaven to get a Savior. He has already come all the way down to earth and to the grave and to the depths of hell itself. He has descended. Somebody give me a witness. And then he also ascended. He ascended. Paul writes, you don't need to descend into the abyss to bring Christ back up from the dead. Why? Because he has already come back from there. He's already come back. How did he ascend? He ascended out of the grave. The death claws that he was wrapped in could not hinder him. The cords of death could not bind him. The power of the grave could not contain him. The stone that was rolled in front of the tomb with the authority of Rome guarded by two soldiers there could not lock him in death's chamber. He ascended. And then... 40 days after his ascension from the tomb, he ascended into the clouds. After appearing to his disciples for 40 days, he then left them rising into the air, being caught up into the clouds. And then he also went beyond that. He ascended all the way to the right hand of the throne of God to be seated 
by his Father where he is now the Lord of all glory and the soon and coming judge of all of the earth. He has been given the name that is above every name. Here's the point of the gospel that Paul is making this word of faith is this, that Jesus Christ, that the historical person of the Lord Jesus Christ has already done everything that is needed for salvation. He has descended in His incarnation, becoming a human, and then right to the very act of crucifixion, and then into the grave, and then into the depths, and then He ascended through His resurrection, and through His ascension, and ultimately to His exaltation, to the very throne of God. So don't think that you have to go to heaven and find a Savior and bring Him down. Don't think that you can do anything to help the work of salvation that He has accomplished by bringing Him from the dead. It is a done work. It is completely finished so that all you have to do is believe in Him and what He has done. That's how Jesus Christ is the end of the law. That's how Jesus Christ ends the condemnation of the law for you. Paul goes on to say, Verses 9 and 10. Because based upon what he just communicated about Jesus and his person and saving work, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let me speak here for a moment about these two things. We're not careful what it can look like is Paul is saying you got to do two things. And what I want to show you is it's not really two things. It's one thing. Yes, he mentions two. He mentions both the mouth's confession and the heart's belief. In that order in verse 9, but that sounds kind of confusing, right? Because you believe first and then you confess. But so that you don't think he's trying to give an order of two steps in the very next verse in verse 10 he reverses it and he says and with the mouth I mean with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved so there's not an order here it's not meant to prescribe an order here's the point Both of these things are a part of salvation, but they're a package deal. Here's what I mean by that. could say it this way. A heart that believes, truly believes, is always complemented by a mouth that confesses. They're a part of a packaged deal. A heart that truly believes, that is transformed by the regenerating power of God that puts its faith and trust in Christ and who He is, then there's an overflow of that heart that confesses the reality of who Jesus is. He's the Lord. 
It's not that you're not saved until the words come off your lips. You're saved when your heart puts its trust in Christ and Christ alone. And then the fruit of that is going to be lips that confess the truth that you have believed in. But I don't want to discount the confession, the proclamation. It's here for a reason. I don't believe there's such a thing as a secret, silent Christian. I think the Word of God is consistent. We can see this verse here. Let me just give you another one. Luke 12, 8. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. There is an acknowledgement. There's a profession of the mouth of life that goes along with the belief and the transformation in the heart. Robert Haldane says it like this. Faith is necessary to obtain the gift of righteousness. Confession is necessary to prove that the gift has been received. So let me now draw your attention to two phrases here that are so important for an understanding of what salvation really is, what faith really is. Specifically, Paul says, what, it is, what is it that we are to confess? We're to confess that Jesus is what? He's Lord. Jesus is Lord. The truth contained in that statement is so profound, it's so powerful. The word that Paul uses here for Lord, listen to this carefully, the word that Paul uses for Lord is the Greek translation. That's what the New Testament is written in. Greek, is the Greek translation of a Hebrew name for God. Hebrew is what the Old Testament was written in. This is a Greek translation of the Hebrew name for God. Now, in the Old Testament, Hebrew, there's a lot of names for God, but there's one name that is His most personal name, and it's Yahweh. And what we have here in the Greek is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. So what Paul is doing here is he is saying that what you have to confess or what you have to believe in your heart and then confess is that Jesus is in fact the God of the Bible. He's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is Himself God of very God. It's not just words coming off your lips. It is the conviction that Jesus of Nazareth, that historical person, is actually the one that left heaven's throne and came down and took on humanity. He is Yahweh. He's Jehovah. He's the creator of the universe. That's who Jesus is. That's what you are confessing when you're confessing that Jesus is the Lord. He's God. Secondly, you're confessing that not only is He God, but He has won the victory. He's Lord. That name means that He is over all, sovereignly 
the victor in charge of all. He has defeated sin and death and hell. He's the conqueror. He's the mighty one that has accomplished salvation. Jesus is Lord, the victorious God. That's what that confession involves. And then Paul says something that we have to believe. We have to believe about Jesus that God raised him from the dead. We have to believe that God raised him from the dead. Why? Well, here is such a critical component to the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, at one point, Jesus was asked by those that were following him around, we want a sign that proves you are who you say you are. We want a sign. And here's what Jesus said. He didn't say, oh, there's a thousand things. And he didn't say, I'm not going to give you one. He said, there's one. There's one. And the sign is this. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth three days and then I'm coming back out. My resurrection is the sign that proves my identity and my work of salvation. My res- the resurrection is the sign. Think about what the resurrection proves. It proves that Jesus is God. Jesus came down here and he said many times to his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, but three days later I'm coming back. Three days later I'm coming back. Only God can accomplish that turnaround. And Jesus, when he stepped out of the tomb, proved that he was the Lord of creation, the Lord of life. Secondly, the resurrection proves that Jesus' teachings are inerrant. Think about the connection there. If the resurrection proves that Jesus is God, then what we had here was God teaching us so that what we have in the Bible, in the words of Jesus, are the very words of God that makes His teaching, His truth, inerrant without error. Thirdly, the resurrection proves that Jesus is returning one day to judge the world, Acts 17.31. Listen to what is written. It says, because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the judge of all the earth and is coming back one day to fulfill that role. Number five, the, four, the resurrection proves that everyone that puts their faith in Jesus is going to win the victory over death as well. Jesus rose from the dead. He proved that he was God. And he said to everyone that puts their faith in him, though they die, He's the resurrection and the life. They're going to come back out of the tomb just like he did. And then finally, and most importantly, the resurrection proves that those who have placed their faith in Jesus stand 
perfectly justified in the presence of God. Why is that so? Well, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am dying for the sins of humanity. I'm not dying for my own sins. Scripture says he was sinless. He says, I'm dying for the sins of humanity. And I'm going to rise on the third day in victory. And so Jesus died. And here's the question. We know he died. Was his death enough? Was the death of Jesus effective enough to pay the price, this redemption price for sin? And there was a question on that until Sunday morning when Jesus walked out of the tomb and in the resurrection, there was a shout from heaven, an earthquake, and an exclamation point put by God the Father on the fact that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was accepted. Because if it wasn't, if he had sinned at any point, he would have had to have died for his own sin and he would have stayed in the grave. But he arose on the third day. And in that is the proof that he has paid the full price for salvation. Nothing else has to be done. It's all paid and completed. And then comes the last three verses, 11 to 13. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see the threefold repeated truth. It's for everyone who believes. It's for all who call upon Him. It's for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And what is salvation? It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, your economic status is, your intellectual capacity is. It is for everyone who calls on the Lord. It's for everyone who will come and put their faith in the Lord. You say, well, Brad, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have preached nine Sundays in a row from the ninth chapter of Romans saying it's all about God's election. How does this fit with God's election? I'm telling you it fits perfectly with God's election. Because what God does for His elect is He calls them to Himself at a point in their life. He elects them from eternity past, but at a point in their life He calls them to Himself. And that's when you call upon the name of the Lord. That's when you have the faith to believe. That's when you're awoken to the reality of your need. So it's a perfect complement, not to contradiction. So if you're here this morning and you are sensing this truth about Jesus and it's kind of burning within your heart, what's happening is that God is calling you to Himself. That wouldn't happen if He wasn't. You're one of the elect. Put your faith in Jesus. Call upon the finished work and the person of Christ and you will be saved. It's a promise from the Word. So what is the gospel about? The gospel is about believing in who Jesus is and what He has done. And it's about believing that all it takes is faith. 
to accomplish salvation because that faith is squarely resting upon the person of Jesus who has done it all. And then thirdly, what you do as you are awakened to that reality is you call upon the Lord. You put your faith in Him and call upon Him and you are saved. That's the message of the gospel. You don't have to go into heaven to get it. You don't have to go into the deep to bring it up. It's right here, right near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Just believe and be saved. Believe and be saved.